0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show. This is episode 142 of the Meet the Farmers podcast, and I'm your host, Ben Eagle. Today on the show, I am really pleased to say that I have broadcaster, journalist, and founder of Just Farmers, Anna Jones, with me. Um, Anna is here to tell us all about her upcoming book, Divide. The relationship crisis between town and country which is available in all the usual places from march the 3rd the book is highly personal but also adept in terms of exploring the bigger picture Um, anna tells us her story of growing up on a small farm to moving to the city to follow through with her journalism career ambitions she explores the perceived disparities between town and country but also looks for common ground which is always an important aspiration in my mind. Uh, for me personally, it was, it was really interesting reading about someone who who shared my own experience in my head, uh, this urban-rural-personal divide. Um, so I have friends in town and country, and having lived for some, some years in Bristol, um, and now back on the family farm in Essex, I too really share this personal rural urban divide in, in terms of understanding my own identity. So it was absolutely fascinating reading this book and, I'm, and we haven't even we haven't even started the interview yet, but honestly, guys, please go out um, pre-order it um, and, and then and if you're listening to this after March the 3rd, please please order a copy as well because it is it is really fascinating. Um, as it says on the book sleeve, this book will surely start conversations, um, which I hope it will. Anna, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, oh, th-
1: thank you so much for inviting me on. Like an- another bucket list. Yeah. On the- farmers. Wow. Well, as you tell, <laughs> no, I'm-,
0: I'm probably quite excited. I'm probably more excited than you are to, to have you on. I think on we're here.
1: both pretty excited.
0: <laughs> I think so. Um, um I've given a brief intro, mostly to the book there, but and uh, obviously the book is a lot about you as well. But can you introduce yourself um to yeah. listeners? I know that many listeners will already know of you and your work.
1: Well, first of all, thank you for for introducing it so brilliantly and um, and for plugging the book like that. And I'm really pleased that you uh, that it resonated with you, Ben, because um, that's kind of what I was aiming for. Um, so, yeah, a, a bit about me. Um, yeah, my name's Anna. I grew up uh, on a small uh, family beef and sheep farm uh, right on the border between England and Wales, near Oswestry in Shropshire, um, and went to university, studied journalism, kind of knew at a freakishly young age that that's what I wanted to be. Uh, And kind of, once I do set my mind on things, I tend to be quite focused. And um, then I went to journalism at uni and then worked in newspapers as a reporter in general news, sort of door knocking for a few years, and then knew that I wanted to somehow bring farming into my journalism career. Uh, And that's when I sort of, started banging on the door of the BBC 2006 got a job on Countryfile spent 12 years at the BBC um, working on various rural affairs programs from Countryfile to Farming Today to On Your Farm on Radio 4 and then went freelance and as you've mentioned you know off the back of my Nuffield scholarship which looked at the coverage of agriculture in the media um, and the relationship there that isn't always positive I decided to set up something to try and help and just farmers is is my small way of trying to build bridges between uh an urban media and a rural farming population and I yeah. think all of this whole experience is what's led to the book
0: yeah yeah I mean you mentioned there that that you knew what, what you wanted to do for from quite an early age which not everyone has why do you think
1: um it's it's not a cool answer unfortunately <laughs> do you remember those psc lessons you used to have oh, yeah. in school yeah. yeah so we had a, a teacher that came in and was asked going around the class and asking what everyone wanted to be and I knew I knew I wanted to be some kind of city power woman and I had this I think I'd watched a lot of 80s movies and <laughs> you know in the 80s it was all about power dressing women and it was quite a feminist time and there's a young impressionable you know eight nine year old or whatever watching these women I was always like I want to stride around Manhattan in heels I want to be like that and um, so I always thought I was going to be a lawyer because that's the ultimate striding around in heels job and then that PSE lesson I remember one of the girls in my class said that she wanted to be a journalist and it was the first time I'd ever heard that word journalist out, out loud but I remember thinking Oh my god, that's me! Like I I love talking, I love asking questions. I'm very, very nosy, and (laughs) I love love writing. And uh, I remember just I nicked the idea off a girl in class. Like that's so not cool, (laughs) is it? But that is that is the truth.
0: And then fast forward several years, and like I say, you've you've, you've outlined uh, your career so far in that, and so many highlights in that. But I mean, why did you? Why do you think you struggled to? reconcile that direction that you've been so determined to go down with your rural upbringing
1: my rural upbringing was something that i really took for granted when i was a child and i think that was for lots of reasons one at that time 1990s farming was having a very very difficult time and dad did not encourage any of us me nor my two sisters to go into farming in fact he actively discouraged it And, you know, he wanted us to explore the world. He wanted us to get an education, like get educated. He used to say that all the time, you know, go and do something else. And mum was very adventurous as well and was all about kind of go out there and, you know, have adventures. And the school that I was in never encouraged agriculture either, or or it really never acknowledged that we were rural kids growing up in an agricultural community. It kind of wanted to push you away from it. If If you showed any kind of academic ability I remember that subtle pressure from the teachers of you go to university you go you go so I think there was that that kind of pushed me away from my rural life and then I I eventually ended up I was quite old when I moved to a city for the first time I was 25 when I moved to Birmingham and uh, because Preston where I went to uni wasn't a city when I was in uni it was still a town
2: yeah
1: and um so 25 ended up in Birmingham and I just had the best time yeah and I Well, for a couple of years, I kind of forgot home, really. Um, I really threw myself into it. And the only time I ever really went to the countryside was when I went to music festivals. (laughs) And, uh, you know, so I really, really embraced urban life. And I didn't realise that I was changing. And I think very, very subtly changing. And I felt when I went home, a sort of formality had sprung up between people that I had known all my life like in my community like we used to talk so freely we'd pass each other on the road and wind the window down on the lane and have a good old chin wag but suddenly people were more formal around me or less familiar and I suddenly realized I was like my god I, I'm not part of this community anymore people are different around me people think that I'm different and you know what I probably am different and um you know, I'd stopped going to Young Farmers, I stopped going to the Royal Welsh show, um, socialising with young country people. I wasn't doing it as much as I used to. And um, it was like a door had clicked shut behind me. And I started to feel like I was losing a part of myself. And I know that might sound dramatic, but I, I, I'm sure there must be other people that have felt that. And um, because you do change moving to a city, And not just that, the people in your community, in your farming community, look at you differently because you've moved to the city. Yeah. And I had this conversation with Matt Naylor, um, flower grower uh, from Lincolnshire, and he was saying, you know, yeah, it's true. You know, you see these people that go off and have their life in the city and they come back and the community does look at them differently. They don't quite fit in in the same way anymore. And that was a great sadness to me probably more than a sadness it was kind of an anxiety and a Mm. panic Mm. and um that's one of the reasons I went for my Nuffield scholarship and applied because I was trying to get something back that I felt like I was in danger of losing um so that's why I did struggle as you say to sort of reconcile those two identities I think that was the beginning of that struggle with that recognition that I was changing
0: yeah I mean so much of that resonates with me and um both, especially at school, and also growing up on well, we, we were a dairy farm in the nineties, uh, end of yeah, end of the MMB, um, and it was it was a it was a terrible time on the farm, and so much so that yeah, me, and my sibling, well, me and my sister back then, um, we were definitely definitely got the feeling. I don't I, I don't think we were ever it ever came up as a conversation, but I felt massively discouraged, definitely from. It's both going into the family business, but also just agriculture generally. I don't think it even featured as even a prospect. It was always go and do something else, make something yeah. else with your life. And then similarly, you know, how you were saying when you moved to Birmingham, I know when I moved to Bristol. Um, and definitely for that 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 first sort of few years, I completely get that as well. You don't even don't even think, but it was it was no, strangely, exactly. yeah, strangely for me, it was it was actually moving away that then reattracted me. Um to that rural heritage and it was that that actually got me back out onto farms I started doing lots of volunteering in conservation then I ended up going into conservation as well for a time but it's it, it's fascinating how when you experience both sides and this is what one of the things I love about the, about the book it actually makes you think about that um, which we don't really think about generally um, it makes you think about both those sides Anyway, I'm rambling. Um, Let's go back to you. No, it's fascinating.
1: No, I love hearing it it, it, because you're right. People don't talk about it. It has been overlooked and it's never consciously acknowledged, which I think is a mistake. Mm. And that's why I love talking about it and hearing your experiences, Ben, because it's kind of been, when it's reflected back at you from other people's experiences, you think, oh God, this isn't just me. This Mm. This is a thing. This is a cultural difference that, actually it's important to acknowledge it and it's important to acknowledge that there are different identities that go with being an urban person or a rural person yeah um so no I'm I'm fascinated to hear your experiences
0: so you explore your family history um in the opening chapter um and a, a lot of the book is highly personal um in a latter chapter for example you write about your your pregnancy for example um why was it important for you to make this a personal book and and I suppose, why did, you, why did you want to write it?
1: Why is it so personal? And it, it's important to write about what you know and, and what you feel. Because the issues in the book are deeply, deeply personal to me. And I, I wasn't sure that I could really show the divide unless I showed how it had affected me. Okay. And, um, and I suppose by opening myself up, I hope that the book will encourage people to open themselves up as well and to maybe have a little look inside and think, Oh, have I experienced some of these uncomfortable feelings? Um, like, like you said, you know, resonated with you. I wrote, uh, I was writing the book when, um, I got pregnant and also lost the baby. And, you know, all of that happened while I was writing the book. And, um, so, it was almost I was writing in real time and it was such a huge thing in my life. And as you read in the book, it kind of led me to meet people who had hugely relevant things to say about this. Um, it was all sort of tied up. And I also wrote it in lockdown. So when you're kind of, you know, I had a miscarriage in that January, 2021 hard lockdown, um, totally cut off from my family and oh, friends gosh, like it was very very difficult and all I really had to pour myself into was the book um, but that's not I don't feel bad about that and that's certainly not a negative I think in some ways it was cathartic to be able to share that um, but ultimately it is about write what you know and that's always that's always been drilled into me all through my career is you know write what you know about write what you're passionate about and that will translate and other people will hopefully be infected by that enthusiasm and, and enjoy reading it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I hope they will too. I'm sure they will. Um, I mean, there is loads packed into it um, and I don't want to give too many spoilers away, um, (laughs) but I imagine, I imagine there was, I know there was a lot that didn't make the cut, uh, which is always the bit that interests me. And I don't know how much your publishers will allow you to say, uh, but what were some of those things that, that you wrote about that, that didn't make it through?
1: I was asked to write a 60,000-word book. Get, get, guess how many words I submitted. <laughs> I'm
0: guessing almost <laughs> double, probably, <laughs> paying you.
1: 107,000 words. <laughs> <laughs> so you an too much an editor's nightmare. Yeah, it was, uh, I mean, I know when they gave me the contract and it said 60,000 words, I remember thinking, oh my God, I'm never going to be able to write that much. (laughs) But as soon as I started writing, it all just came spilling out. So rather than salami slicing through the whole book, one of the things that the publisher decided to do was take out a whole chapter. They just took out a whole chapter, which was called culture. There was a culture chapter in there. And the culture chapter looked at Fashion, country clothing, and streetwear. It talked about how we converse. It talked about um, the culture of the livestock markets. It talked a lot about country sports. Actually, there was a lot on um, shooting and and hunting and things in that chapter. And in the end, uh, it was a difficult decision. But I think they thought, you know, some of the other chapters are really quite you know we've got politics you've got environment you've got yeah. food you know these are big big issues and they like it felt a little trite compared to everything else it was the light it you know talk it, it was a little bit of a more light-hearted chapter um and I'm going to take some of it and put it into blogs because I wouldn't okay. want that work to be wasted but you know Matt Naylor who who have spoken about you know the flower growing in, in, in Lincolnshire and the co-founder of Agrospect he featured heavily in the culture chapter and he just He's such a witty guy. One of the things we were talking about, um, clothes that farmers wear. And uh, I was sad that this didn't make it into the book, actually. And uh, he said to me, he was like, why do farmers have to wear sombre-looking clothes? (laughs) (laughs) And uh, he was like, you go to the livestock markets and it's a sea of kind of muted green Such a bad thing
0: to say. Like,
1: they dress the colour of a hedgerow uh, in winter. And... It was just like, yes, they do, and it's like, why? And then he said, and then he said to me, he's like, can you imagine if you turned up at the auction wearing a ski jacket like John Craven, like a bright <laughs> red ski jacket? And he was like, people would look at you. because <laughs> You should wear a somber-looking coat. We're farmers, and so anyway, I, I thought it, we were. It was yeah, it was those kind of conversations yeah. that make it into the final cut.
0: Yeah, okay. Um and the final title, of course, divide. I suppose why that title? And was were there any alternative titles? And and what conclusion did you come to?
1: I suppose a more a more accurate name for the book would probably be difference. Yeah. Um, yeah. which is, you know, but that doesn't sound but very interesting. It's not as good it's, a title, is no, it? <laughs> it doesn't sound very interesting. It doesn't really make <laughs> grammatical sense either. It's just diff- people are like, what the hell? Um, but really, you know, the, the only reason there is a divide is because we don't consciously acknowledge and respect the difference. If we just accepted the differences, there wouldn't be a divide. And divide, no, that was the first, that was the first title that came up. And, um, and then that was it. There was a, the tagline was going to be different and I'm really glad they changed it because it was a bit crap looking back. <laughs> <But> it was <laughs> my, I originally, when I pitched the book, it was called Divide. And then it said how the town mouse and the country mouse went to war. Okay. Um, but they've changed it to the relationship crisis between town and country, which is a billion times better. And <laughs> I wish I, I wish I thought of that myself. So no, but it was always going to be called Divide.
0: Okay. Um, I mean, you, you write quite often in the book of, of the way you feel when you're in different social environments. And we spoke about this very briefly before we started recording. Uh, and you often end up, and I, I find this as well, you, you often end up taking the side of, of urban when in rural setting and, and rural when in an urban setting around different people. I mean, how, how, what's your experience of that? How, how do you find that?
1: Difficult, lonely, um, upsetting, and, and definitely isolating because it wears on you after a while when you're constantly playing devil's advocate. We live in an age where so many people have such clear, defined ideas in debates and they choose a side and they stick to it. And they're so resolute in their belief. And I don't know what that feels like. I've never been resolute in my in my ideas around debates and I think that's part of the partly because I'm a journalist and it is my job to kind of listen and explore and question all different angles secondly I'm BBC trained and whatever you you know whatever you think about the BBC if I I think it's bonkers that people think the BS the BBC um is biased because you know you are just any opinions are just like hammered out. Of you. Like, <laughs> you are not allowed opinions on anything, you know. So in, impartiality has been kind of like absolutely drilled into me th- at the BBC. Um, but also because I do live in these two worlds. You've got one foot in both camps. And how can, you, how can you set yourself on an extreme end of a spectrum when you've got all of these different influences around you and all these different opinions um so I think before I wrote the book in the years before I wrote it I was getting really down about it because I was like I am fed up of never belonging to a tribe I'm fed up of always feeling on the outside always being the bad guy always losing and just getting it in the neck you know dinner parties you're just like Mrs Unpopular and then you go to something else in the countryside and you are Mrs Unpopular there as well and you're just kind of like what and that now having written the book I think it's kind of made me feel a little bit more um confident in that now so I'm like actually it's all right to be on the outside and to never feel like you truly belong to the tribe that is okay but ultimately we're humans and we want to belong don't we we want to fit in um sometimes if you're a bit of an urban rural half-breed like I am you don't always fit in
0: yeah, I mean, there's, the, there's a br- brilliant section of the book in, in that politics section where, because I, I, I one of the things I love is the way that you describe those experiences of, of the interview process that, that you have with people and the way that you meet people. Uh, there's a particular couple in Bristol um, who, who you meet. And I, I love that conversation. I'm not going to get going too much because, again, read the book, guys. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah so in the, in the politics actually you write in there of, of a sort of window of opportunity we see to, seem to have at the moment in terms of bringing people together in the countryside in some sort of shared project of, of tackling the various crises we have and I know there are strong views on this work but and, and there's also dichotomous views as well we've got food security we've got tackling the nature and climate crisis i mean you speak to a lot of different people in in, in lots of lots of different settings um do you? What's your sense on sort of feeling of unity, and and also there's been a such it's been such a profound shift. I remember on the day after Brexit Day, I was I was still living in Bristol then, um, and I remember walking uh, down Park Street actually, just just the sort of shock and disbelief, um, but also uh, going out to going out to a lot of farmers and 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 uh, and speaking to people in, in sort of rural settings as well at that time, and. And I suppose the, the, the Scotland debate as well, if we're going back a few years before yeah. then as well, we had Brexit, um, the whole European debate. Um, and now, obviously, we've got the, the Ukraine crisis, which we'll, we'll see how that shifts as well. Um, I suppose this is a very long way of saying that what is your personal feeling as someone who speaks to a lot of different people in different settings um, on that question of unity? Uh, where are we right now?
1: I'm a, um, a, an eternal optimist, which gets me into trouble sometimes because I always like to see the bright side. I'm definitely a glass half full person. And um, usually that's a good thing. But sometimes it can mean that the way I read things is slightly off. So uh, we had a couple of mates around for dinner last night and I knew this question was going to come up. So I thought, I'll just float it with my mates because I okay. was going to say I, I think that we are entering into more unified thinking. And I'll explain why in a moment but I asked my two friends about it and they were just like uh, no not in any way <laughs> was like more divided than ever and they were like politics politics is going to get even more divisive and I was like oh right okay so I asked them why and uh, my friend Vicky made a really interesting point and she was like she goes it doesn't matter if politics is divisive or not the, the way that we now commentate on politics is so divisive because of social media that it will it will keep uh, public conversation in a divisive place because of the way social media works and the way the algorithms work and uh, the way that it kind of plays to the less nice aspects of our human nature. You know, these sort of this echo chamber thinking and so on. So I, I was a bit bummed out by that. I was like, oh, right, okay. Because what I was going to say was what I found in while I was writing the book um, was that Yes, when you, look at, when you look at belief systems and when you look at groups and when you look at ideologies, has the world ever been less divided? We are in a bit of a polarised place. But when you, when you talk to the individuals, and as you said there, I do talk to a lot of different people in the book, it kind of melts away and it's not there anymore. People on an individual basis are so much more understanding, mm-hmm. accepting, mm-hmm. compassionate, empathetic, and willing to engage they I I never met anyone who I felt summed up you know the kind of oh I don't want to listen to anyone who doesn't think like me (laughs) you know I I actually haven't have you met a person like that um yes (laughs) have you maybe I'm talking maybe all the people I'm talking to are too nice
0: I've met some people like that, but they're definitely, <laughs> definitely in the minority.
1: Yes, they, yeah, I, I have met people like that as well. But they, you're right, they are in the minority. They're not most people. But sometimes when we read newspapers or we look at social media we it can give you the impression that most people are like that which they're not so um i would say very long way of saying it is i hope that there is potential for us to be entering a more unified age because it is it is possible i actually remember starting university and one of my journalism lecturers saying to me and this was in the early noughties we are living in an age of consensus politics and i always remember that and i was like God, how boring, how how boring to be at university. You know, I'm supposed to be like marching against things and and just having opinions. And, there, you know, it's a consensus age of politics. And I remember but how I yearn for that now, how I am nostalgic for that. And I want that back. Um, So, yeah, I would say to 18 year old me, careful what you wish for. You know, you've got it pretty damn good. So it's obviously possible to have that, more unified less divisive way of of running the country and being as people um, i hope it comes back
0: okay what about food um and you write extensively in the book about food experiences um and uh, i'm gonna i'm gonna actually provide one one quote we're gonna get one quote of the book here uh where are we at? okay Your farming and the countryside feel very far away um this is speaking of uh of, of your uh, of an area of bristol that you're in Um, yet food culture in this deeply urban area is flourishing there's a whole food deli and artisan bakery just a two-minute walk up the street i can explore the cuisines of india poland somalia china thailand italy latin america and the caribbean all within a square mile of my house Um, and then you later write at the reaction that your parents had to a butternut squash you left for them which i loved (laughs) Um, you also right of, of the reasons why people in different environments might choose to eat what they eat. Um, why do you think it's important that we talk about those questions in the context of, a, of an urban-rural divide? Why is food so important still, or is it so important still?
1: Yeah, so the butternut squash or that bloody-eyed orange thing, as much <laughs> calls it. In that chapter, I, I do call out this trend for saying food and farming and, you know putting them together as this one entity. And um, I know that the NFU do it because I think they think, well, people don't care about farming, but they care about food. So if we package our um, issues and the things that we want the public to get on board with, if we package it as food and farming together, that'll help people get on board because they can relate to the food bit. And I actually think it's a mistake to just shove the two together and assume that people are going to get it, that they are one, that they are entwined. Um, and that works both in an urban setting and a rural setting. So in an urban setting, food flourishing. Yeah, absolutely. And I write about my partner, Alex, who spends a lot of money on food. A, he is a foodie. Yes. He, he will put foodie as part of his identity. But you didn't give a crap about farming before that. <laughs> yeah absolutely never thought about it it literally and I'm not exactly it literally never crossed his mind yeah. how the food that he adores so much yeah. was produced, where it was raised, what country it was from he's never looked at a label of meat he doesn't know what the tra- red tractor is yeah. and he's never asked where food comes from yeah. in, a re- in a restaurant so and and he's not unique that is goes for most of my friends in the city. But then bring it to the countryside and the farmers that I know in my family and in my circles, a lot of them, you know, they love talking about commodities. They love talking about farming and they love talking about livestock. Yeah. But baking and cooking and menus and recipes. No.
0: Yeah. This is this is George Young's vendetta, isn't it? (laughs)
1: exactly and he's in the book and I give him a great platform to to get that out there and I share it I do and um, you know a connection to to farming does not automatically mean that you are connected to food you might not really give a jot about food but be a farmer so uh, you know from those two things I'm like beware the danger of packaging food and farming together and assuming that people in rural and urban areas have the same interpretation of that phrase Um, and 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 then i talk a lot about food insecurity and food poverty as well and um, so often food poverty is seen as an urban issue and i was astounded in the research for the book to uncover how much it is just a, a, a problem in rural areas as well i talk about the uk and the u.s And the the food desert of the countryside where you're surrounded by food and you can't buy it anywhere particularly fresh produce food is something where there are urban rural divides running through it and um the what i try and do in the book is is unpack it a little bit and try and separate these forces of food and farming and kind of look at them on their own and then try and see how they intersect with each other
0: yeah and, and then there's the environment chapter, and I thought this was particularly fascinating as well. I'm interested in in, in your view, and again, you've viewed it both for this book and, and for numerous other things as well. You, you've interviewed people on both sides, and I say, I say actually both sides there that that's a mistake, don't say sides, don't yeah, bring them yeah. in. <laughs> um, but where do you think conservation sits at the moment? And I'm also going to, we've got the words conservation, we've got the words rewilding, which again is there's all just an ongoing debate on what we mean by all this still mm. um but where do you think conservation sits on that urban rural question mm. who um, who does it belong to
1: yeah it's a really good and I, I spend lots of time pondering this um so on the surface the environment conservation question is not an urban rural issue um it's that decades long conflict between agriculture and conservation. Yeah. Um, but the urban rural thing is there and you, you don't yeah. you just if you scratch the surface, it's it there. Is. And, you know, if you if you look at, um, you know, the climate act- action movement, extinction rebellion, if you look at vegan activism, um, these are inherently urban movements um, with their the nucleus is in the cities. And farming, still predominantly land-based, rural, employs a lot of rural people. Um, So at at its heart, on the kind of like more activist level, these are different cultures with different life experiences, different politics. But when those two worlds come together, all of that, again, kind of melts away. So I use my sister as an example. So my sister is a conservationist. And a very uh, ecologically educated person. And she's worked for the National Trust as a ranger. She's worked for the Wildlife Trusts on natural flood management. Um, She's now working for Bug Life as a conservation officer, doing lots on pollinator highways and linking up habitat to create networks for pollinators around Shropshire. She's also a farmer's daughter with exactly the same upbringing as, as mine and comes from a farming community her experiences and when you talk to her about her work with farmers it is so far away from the debates that we read about in the news and you know that conservationists and farmers are just at each other's throats and it's this big old battle when you talk to people that are kind of living both worlds and there's a lot there's a lot of conservationists that come from farming backgrounds or come from rural communities and are still in those rural communities and they're yep. working for national trust or whatever you you kind of think actually there's a subtlety to this relationship that we're missing in the in the uh in the national debate about agriculture and conservation and we're kind of missing where the two just cross over so much because uh, kate isn't you know unique there'll be a lot of farmers daughters yeah yeah uh, that are ecologists and i don't think necessarily the national conversation which tends to always drag these things into a binary black or white debate leans enough on those people you know and the amount of conservationists that go into farming like i know a lot of people first generation farmers that come from ecological backgrounds yeah that are farming and uh yeah well, there is so much crossover but that crossover on the ground doesn't always translate to crossover in the debate at a macro level
0: yeah were there any particular aspects of the book that were difficult to write Uh, all of it (laughs) can you round that Um, down
1: (laughs) I'm a I'm a very conflict averse person that's written a book about conflict
0: Uh, yeah
2: exactly
1: (laughs) (laughs) I hate having a row I am not good at conflict um but I think probably the diversity chapter was the hardest to write because um you know, I'm a white, heterosexual, cisgender British woman writing about diversity. Um, that was that was difficult. And, you know, so it's so important. You know, it's about the people's stories and people with different experiences to me that I could go to and ask questions. And And I'm so, so grateful to um, all of the people that feature in that chapter for their openness and for allowing me to ask difficult questions um, about really sensitive subjects because you know it is uncomfortable to talk about diversity particularly for white people white people are very uncomfortable talking about racism and uh, talking about diversity and um, you know the people I've spoken to in the book have helped me overcome some of that discomfort probably the diversity chapter I think took me the longest time to write.
0: Um, Adam Hedson has called the book a brilliant call to action for town and country to work together like never before. What does working together really mean for you, do you reckon?
1: Acknowledging difference. And once you acknowledge it, accepting it with empathy and compassion, and then listening to each other. And then you can work together. So it's kind of before the kind of like actual work can happen, it's kind of a process. And, um, you know, and and working together, um, that could be like the really big stuff. So, you know, we've seen Keir Starmer saying that he's going after Boris's blue wall in the same way that Boris went after Labour's red wall. Yep. Um, I find that really fascinating and I'm I, I really, really looking forward to watch how that mm. plays out um, because it's fresh and it's new and it's like, oh, you know, Labour aren't just overlooking the blue rural areas. Yeah. That will be a really yeah. interesting process to watch, Um, you know. The NFU engaging with urban schools, making a real effort to get into, you know, inner city areas, dog walkers talking to landowners, landowners talking to dog walkers. You know, the, the, all these things are working together, but none of it is, in my opinion, it won't get very far unless we go through a conscious acknowledgement that you are probably going to see the world very differently if you're brought up in an urban area. To somebody that was brought up in a rural in a rural area and um it, it sounds so blinking obvious the whole time i was the whole time i was writing this book my main insecurity is no one oh oh god this is just so bleeding obvious everyone knows this but yes we know it and i think because it is so kind of obvious it's hiding in plain sight as a problem yeah because you're like well yeah we know the city and the countryside is different but we don't ever examine why Hmm. what what problems could it be causing when we don't fully understand why Uh,
0: so we do have one question um uh, and that's from mr will evans Uh, why are many farmers seemingly obsessed with vegans when they represent such a small proportion of the uk population and is it detrimental to us as an industry by making us seem desperately insecure about what we do i think it's a really good question
1: yeah, that's the banging question. Yeah, happy to take that. And um, first thing I'd say is I understand it. I understand that obsession because I've experienced it myself when I was about nine or ten. And when I was in primary school, um, a vegetarian came to the school and uh, she, uh, she her family had moved down from Manchester. And um, I remember the arguments we had about meat eating in the school hall. Over our lunch boxes, and I was, so you know, I remember the feeling of threat, and I remember like I need to win this argument. I need to make her see why we should eat animals and why you know it's okay to produce animals and kill them for meat. And uh, I I remember that, and I remember feeling like it became like an obsession. Yeah. And yeah. the re- the reason it became an obsession for me was because it felt like a threat and it came from insecurity just as Will said it was it was absolute insecurity it was somebody had come into our community that thought what we did for a living was wrong and that made me feel like there was something wrong with me and if you feel like there's something wrong with you then you're going to fight to defend and um but I learned an important lesson uh as a little girl talking to a vegetarian and that was to not to get over the threat to accept that people think differently. What they choose to put in their marriage is their business, not your business. And um you can you can accept it. So I do I do understand because I have felt that anger in my belly and I have felt that need to defend my way of life and what my family do and what my family have done for generations. And um but Will is right when it becomes an obsession it does give off not a nice image of our industry and it, it can come across as very insecure and aggressive and um and I'm sure that's how I came off you know when I was nine years old I'm sure I did because I remember being very angry so we have got to get a grip of it because it, it, it can get a bit ridiculous a couple of years ago I remember there was a, a headline in the Farmer's Guardian and I, I pulled it out and the headline was. Farmers must galvanize against organized vegans. I was like, what? Really? We're getting into this kind of language? Um, You know, so I think what we need to remember is that vegans have a lot in common with farmers. Together, they make up like 2% of the UK population. Yep. They both like animals. They both care a lot about the issues much of the rest of the population doesn't give two hoots about. Yep. So they are actually very, very united (laughs) and very, very informed and, you know, care about the same things. So if we start to see what we have in common with vegans rather than what sets us apart, we might get over the obsession.
0: We're going to round this up and I'm going to finish with the same two questions that I asked everyone at the end of the show. Uh, The first is, uh, Anna Jones, if you have a message for the public, what would it be?
1: Yeah, there is, a, there is a message for the public. And, and I think, you know, it, particularly if you're an urban person, because the thing that I found about the urban rural disconnect is that it is felt very palpably and very emotionally by rural people,
0: yeah. but
1: not so yeah. much by urban people. Absolutely. And, um, and I think even if you, you know, if you are urban, it's very easy to overlook it and maybe even think it's not important and to even scoff at it. But I think that's a great danger to overlook it because, you know, if we look at farmers, you know, they're, they're managing 70% of our landscape. You know, 70%, you know, if yeah. and in the it, it's in the urban world where our government departments are based, where the head offices of our conservation organizations are based, where our media resides, mm. all of this is in big cities. And these are the people that have big opinions and big ambitions for the yep. countryside, and they really want to change it. Now, if, If they want to make change in the countryside they first got to understand the people that live there, you know, their communities, their families, their rural business networks, their way of life, their politics, their worldview. You've got to do all of that first if you then want to go and work with them constructively on the things that you want to change or shape. Um, So that would be my message for the the urban reader.
0: And finally, uh, a message for farmers. What is your message for farmers?
1: My message to farmers is more than 80% of British people live in towns and cities and that you need them as much as they need you. Um, And for too long, for my entire lifetime and probably long before I was born, um, farmers too many farmers have moaned and whinged that they don't understand us. They don't know where their food comes from. They don't have a clue about farming. They don't respect the countryside, Mm -hmm. you know, all all of this. And it's like, well, actually I wanna call that out now and say, well, how much are you trying to understand them? You know, do you ever go to a city? Do you ever spend your free time in a city? You know, a a lot of farmers I speak to, take some kind of weird pride in the fact that they've never been to a city. I never go to the city, never been to London, not never been to London, no interest in it. Yeah. And I've never spent a night away from the farm. Um, my cousin has never been on a train. That's wrong. You know, you, you can't moan about a way of life you've never even attempted to understand yourself. Yeah. So what I, my message to farmers is go to a city. Go on a mini break to the city, eat in a vegan restaurant, go to a city centre cinema or a museum or an art gallery, go to an Extinction Rebellion protest and watch and talk to people. Get out of your rural comfort zone and step towards the urban world rather than treating it like some kind of alien culture that is threatening your way of life in the countryside. You know, and that might sound a bit harsh, but I know that there are those views out there and, um, you know, an expectation on the urban consumer to get educated about farming. We need to educate them about where their <laughs> food is produced. And it's like, well, educate yourself about what it's like to live in a block of flats in the middle of Hackney. That's my message to farmers.
0: Brilliant. That's a great challenge to listeners, I'm sure. We're going to leave it there. But, uh, Anna, thank you so, so much for coming on the show. It's been, yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. And please, listeners, um, do buy the book. It's called Divide. The Relationship Crisis Between Town and Country, it's out on March the 3rd. Read it and enjoy it, and I'm sure that Anna would love to hear any feedback you have as well.
1: I would, definitely. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. This has been such an interesting chat.